all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. The dietary approach is so profound. Without the community elements, without some of these other elements, we would not see as robust uh, of effects, both at the clinical level and just the practical things that people are reporting. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, my name is McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 236 with the medical director of Resilient Roots, Dr. Rob Abbott. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you're going to learn three main things. The real effect of getting support with lifestyle changes, what effect those lifestyle changes have on your quality of life, and how much autoimmune issues can be managed with diet and lifestyle. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lime Ninjas. You're the reason we have more than half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja. Welcome all you Lime Ninjas out there. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners tune in from Dublin to Taranga and from San Francisco to New York. Okay, I feel like I should say that in a, in like a Brooklyn accent, New York. But, 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 <laughs> but rewind there. Where's Taranga? Australia. Australia. Cool. Yeah. All right, Aurora. Tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Dr. Rob Abbott. He's our good friend. He is. Rob Abbott is the medical director and functional medicine physician at Resilient Roots Functional and Evolutionary Medicine in Charlottesville, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017, and he approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls spiritually focused and evolutionarily informed functional medicine. That is a mouthful. And it doesn't make sense until you meet him. So you'll get a... Yeah, as soon as you talk to him, it's like, this makes... All makes sense. All makes sense. It does. All right, and the reason I'm excited to talk to Dr. Abbott today is to really fill in some of the blanks in the three phases of our Lyme Journey Roadmap. And by the way, if you haven't picked that up yet, just go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and click on the Extras button or the Extras menu at the top, and you'll see a link for that. Anyway, so what we found after doing hundreds of these interviews is most people don't have an overall plan. They may have a short-term plan, you know, even even maybe six months to a year on a protocol, but they don't have an overall plan. And when things go south, and they always go south with Lyme disease, we should probably rename it Southern Heading Lyme Disease. <laughs> I mean, just there's always setbacks with Lyme disease. It's the nature of the beast. And when the setbacks happen, Many times there's no plan B. There's no overarching plan. You don't understand where you are on your map on your journey out of Lyme disease. And if you had that, it wouldn't be so traumatic and so scary. So get yourself a Lyme journey roadmap. LimeNinjaRadio.com. Click on the button. It's free. You'll love it. All right. Anyway, so (laughs) what we're doing is we're organizing our podcast to support the different phases 
of your Lyme journey. And basically, there are three phases. The first is reboot, the second is resolve, and the third is restore. And it's really simple. And when you figure out Lyme disease or if you had a setback, you need to reboot and get organized. You know, maybe you need a budget to handle all the out-of-pocket expenses. Maybe you need to know exactly what the diagnosis is because you're going the antibiotic route. Then you need to resolve. So whatever infections you have, whether it's Lyme, all the co-infections, mold. Parasites. Parasites. Viruses. All that Fungus. Stuff. Yes. It needs to be resolved. Now, is it cleared? We don't know yet. So maybe you'll be 100% cleared or maybe your body's just back in charge again. And then the final step is to restore. If you've been sick for a long time, you need to rebuild. And there are funny things that can happen with recovering from being chronically ill. It's things like refeeding syndrome. So you need a strategy to get strong again and then get back into the work place. It's not as easy as it sounds. And if you're prepared, if you have a map, then you stand a fighting chance as opposed to just hitting brick walls over and over and over again. You don't want to do that. So this episode with Dr. Rob Abbott, we're going to talk about a study that he did with an immune diet protocol, which I think is relevant to almost everybody out there listening. And basically, what he's done is study the results of the anti-inflammatory effect of this particular diet. And it's really shocking. And you're going to want to listen to it. So that part is really kind of the first phase, the prepare phase for the resolve section. So it's phase two, step one is prepare for treatment. And one of the ways you could do that is to reduce the inflammatory load on your body. If you're going to be killing off lots of bacteria and stuff, that's crazy inflammatory. You don't want extra inflammation from your diet hanging around. Or this could also be kind of the last phase of the restore step, the third step, and the first step there too, where you've finally resolved most of your infections, but you're not still feeling great. There's still a lot of inflammation. Maybe it's an autoimmune sort of thing that's been triggered by these infections, and you need to calm that down. So this could also be our kind of, what is it, number box three, six, seventh step overall, but the first, the first step in the third phase, which is think outside the tick. You know, when you've been sick for a long time, it's not just about the bugs that are inside you. All right. That said, there's even more I want to talk about before we get into <laughs> Aurora's giving me the hook. It's like, no, stop talking. No, but this is really, really important. And I want to bring up, if you haven't listened to episode number 211 with Jason Moore, he's the founder of Elite HRV. And he's got a little gadget. It's actually on sale now. So you, if, if you've been thinking about getting one, now's a good time to do it. It fits on your finger. It hooks up to your phone. And it basically tells you how stressed you are. It's called a heart rate variability. Heart rate variability. It's a great tool in mapping out your recovery. Are you moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? Do you need to back off from this treatment a little bit and slow down the Herxheimer thing? Or can you fight through it? This will give you a lot of good insight. If you're trying to start to exercise again, it's another great way to see how far you can push this particular day. So I highly recommend listening to episode 211 with Jason Moore. And if you haven't gone out and get one, I don't get any money from these guys. I just, I use it in my practice. It's a great tool. Get the elite HRV finger, uh, whatever it's called, Reader. measuring gadget thing you put on your finger. It's like a pulse ox. Okay. I think I covered everything. And then some. I think we did. Let's dive right into our interview with Dr. Rob Abbott. Hello, Dr. Abbott. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, McKay. It's great to talk to you. You've been up to some interesting things in the world of... Well, you know, we shouldn't call it alternative medicine. It should just be called medicine. It's definitely medicine. It should just be called medicine. Actually, it should probably be called healing and empowerment and education and a lot of other things. But yeah, it should definitely be called just And medicine. you've been working with a group of, I'm going to call them paleo people, and that's the paleo diet, but a specific iteration of that, an autoimmune protocol 
but also that ties in the support aspect of things and the education aspect of things. So it's not just simply switching your diet. What you studied was kind of this alternative. There we go again with that word, the A word, the, an alternative <laughs> approach or a comprehensive or holistic approach, or just maybe an effective approach to, to helping people uh, get in front of their immune systems. So yeah. what, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we've, if folks have listened to at least some of the conversations we've had before in your you know, podcast, we've talked about some of these concepts such as, you know, immune system flexibility, you know, metabolic flexibility, but a lot of issues coming back to disruptions of the immune system, whether it's autoimmune disease, whether it's cancer, whether it's chronic multipathogenic infections, there's a lot of issues with the immune system. And so I've, been super lucky to have started a partnership with a group at Autoimmune Wellness uh, between Angie Alt and Mickey Trescott, who have been doing wonderful work in the sort of greater autoimmune space, bringing very practical resources to help individuals utilize a dietary approach to try to address autoimmune disease. And it's known, the dietary sort of principles they've employed are sort of known as the Autoimmune Paleo Protocol or AIP. And that was sort of born out of a very sort of deep dive in the literature, mainly by Dr. Sarah Valentine, to look at principles of certain foods and their potential immunogenicity to the body and to the immune system, and also how certain foods can interact with the gut microbiome as well as the gut barrier, disrupt integrity. But used a lot of principles to develop a elimination diet that would try to remove foods with minimal nutrient density and with greater um, potential immunogenicity and you know through that hopefully help people who had autoimmune diseases or other uh, disorders of immune dysregulation and this has probably been it's all very new i mean this has really just been happening in the last six seven years and this was kind of an outgrowth of the ancestral paleo movement so this dietary approach is kind of a sub domain of the paleo diet but i actually in terms of this composition, but I also like to think of it as its own independent dietary approach um, because it's been utilized sort of outside of you know, paleo movements and then in our clinic and in other clinical settings and with other disease states besides just autoimmune disease, you know, folks with cancer and other immune dysregulation types of issues. But it's been a, an iterative process and there's been a lot of clinical anecdotal evidence about this dietary approach being very helpful for folks. And there was even a, an initial study done back in 2017 with a doctor, Dr. Corey Conagetti out of the Scripps Clinic in, in San Diego, looking at this dietary approach and sort of other lifestyle interventions. As part of that, and individuals with inflammatory bowel disease, and they saw some pretty amazing results. It was a single arm pilot, you know, no control group, but nonetheless, like 73% of the individuals had a clinical remission, both sort of subjective and objective improvements from colonoscopy or endoscopy. And so that was, I mean, made some pretty big waves in the greater sort of ancestral paleo community. Caught my attention at the time and kind of pushed me further to build this relationship with Angie and Mickey at Autoimmune Wellness and to seek out how could we do more rigorous science about this dietary approach, but also, you know, building in and recognizing that, you know, a single diet will never be the answer. We need other aspects, as you alluded to, of the lifestyle approach. And we in the clinic I'm operating in right now utilize something called the eight elements, which looks at eight different domains of a lifestyle foundation. So whether that's stress, sleep, a wisdom practice, play, community engagement, you know, time in nature, all these things are critical. And so we wanted to also study not just the principles of the AIP diet, but also insert different education and therapies in these domains all within a community setting because healing and isolation is really hard. If you have to do it all by yourself, even with a practitioner guiding you, it can be really, really hard. So we really wanted to study the combination of all of these things, not to, from a scientist perspective, to generate lots of confounding because, yeah, guess what? There's lots of things going on. We probably can't say what did what, but to create a very realistic, real world study which you could apply pretty broadly rather than doing something in a silly hospital setting and giving everyone food and controlling for all these variables that may not 
in the end be very applicable to the real world real world setting so i'll stop there before we you know you probably have some questions and reflections but yeah i mean i've been very fascinated to really rigorously study dietary and lifestyle interventions because a lot of food research diet research is very poorly done um and it's very retrospective and it's just it was designed to fail and never find something meaningful so doing actual interventional studies with multiple components including a dietary component i think is much needed in this greater biomedical space so let us pause there and just go over some basics here. So what's the postage stamp version of paleo diet, the regular paleo? Yeah. So in general, it's basically removing grains, legumes, and dairy. And focusing Why? On, yeah. So the three main principles I think about are nutrient density, its ability to stimulate the immune system, and, and also a food's ability to you know, positively or negatively impact the gut microbiome, which is intimately tied to to the gut barrier. So it's trying to basically remove foods that yeah, have low nutrient density, have a greater potential to be immunogenic to the immune system, and a greater potential to cause dysbiosis or imbalance in the gut microbiome and disrupt gut, gut barrier integrity. Those other principles, I mean, the whole idea too with the ancestral diet is independent of those mechanisms, is it's trying to emulate the dietary principles that we as a species have been following sort of without a scientific approach for thousands of years and what we've evolved over generations to, to eat. So essentially it's everything's on the table except beans, right? And is that all beans? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much all beans, grains. Correct. So, you know, usually here, oh, gluten-free. So that's wheat, but you're talking oats, are you talking rice as mm -hmm. well as, yeah. So rice yeah. is a grain. I mean, quinoa that you kind of get into kind of the alternative grains, but that kind of covers everything right there. Um, pumpernickel, I guess, but that's what, that's an additive anyway, whatever pumpernickel is. <laughs> is there a pumpernickel <laughs> seed? <laughs> Man, I don't what know. is pumpernickel bread anyway? Yeah. But, but so it's, a, 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 right. So any, basically any type of bread, pizza crust, cereals that come in a box that that sort of thing and then dairy's always kind of an interesting one but there are you know some people genetically don't deal well with the the lactose and then as you said it can have some some reactivity it can be the the cause of some uh, autoimmunity and then so that segues into so that's paleo and then autoimmune paleo is even more restrictive in that you take out some other foods that can be reactive eggs is one right what else are kind of the yeah, highly so, reactive foods yeah so eggs are removed nuts and seeds nuts, yeah. are removed yeah. certain fruit um and uh fruit-based spices so certain spices are removed um the nightshade family so things like eggplants tomatoes um, and some of the associated spices like paprika the chili powders those things are uh, are removed. Um, those are the the main things. I mean, some of the other things that people would still could argue shouldn't have been on the paleo diet to begin with, but may be included. Things like coffee and cacao, which are technically legumes, but sometimes they're included in a broader paleo template. Those things are removed on on AIP, and then also it's on the strictest sense that they also try to remove essentially any sort of emulsifying agent or additive agent or anything that could have been derived from a grain. So there's a lot of products and different gums that can be derived from corn products. So in the purest sense, you start to, you know, can get into the weeds with some of these additives, but in some of the basic forms, it's, yeah, it's essentially removing nuts and seeds, eggs, uh, nightshades, and some of those associated spices. All right, great. Now also let's talk about autoimmunity because one of the things that's interesting with Lyme disease and this conversation still out there is there's some thinking on researchers and doctors from the traditional side of things, the IDSA side of things, that the post-Lyme syndrome, what they call it, is actually an autoimmune disease. And in the beginning, I thought, oh, these guys are just nuts. They're trying to you know, dodge the bullet in terms of the, the infection persists. But just because you have Lyme doesn't make you immune from also developing an autoimmune disease. And in fact, if you're chronically inflamed from something like Lyme, you're actually more likely to develop, in addition to Lyme, an autoimmune component as well. And so will you 
brief, again, really briefly, because we could spend weeks talking about what autoimmunity is, but briefly talk about what an autoimmune response is, and then what are some of the common named autoimmune diseases that people come up against? Yeah, so autoimmunity can be thought of in a lot of different ways, but essentially it's reactivity towards self tissue. And the main and that's self, S-E-L-F, not soft. Yeah, rec- yeah, reactivity to, to self. And the term that's most commonly used in immunology is a concept called tolerance. So essentially, your body, in order to be able to recognize what's foreign, needs to be able to recognize self. But recognition is not the same thing as reacting to. So there's a whole cascade of things as certain lymphocytes, so B cells and T cells, different immune cells, as they develop, we have a very intricate set of processes for them to be able to recognize self and not react to. And if certain cells in that developing process are reactive to self or don't recognize it, then they are typically uh, go through apoptosis or killed off. They don't go past the checkpoint. So you're trying to basically make immune cells that don't react to self. So sometimes it's overlooked that we recognize, yeah, of course, we need to be able to respond and recognize things that are foreign. But in order to do that, we have to know what self looks like. And so one of the things that can go wrong is when there's a high degree of immune stimulation or the right types of immune stimulation, you can sort of inadvertently start reacting to self either because self looks a lot like a foreign element, which is a concept called molecular mimicry. Um, You can also have, excuse me, what's called the bystander effect, where essentially you, as a result of having an immune response to an appropriate foreign agent, sort of inadvertently damage self tissue. Um, and that's still kind of a thought of as an autoimmune phenomenon. But yeah, you can think about it in a lot of different ways, but essentially it's a loss of tolerance in the body's immune system, essentially directing resources and energy towards self tissue, damaging self tissue instead of um, recognizing it as self and, and not reacting. And there's a wide spectrum um, and you could, you know, could be thought about in other, diff- you know, other ways as well. But some of the most common disease states are Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is the disease state that we studied in autoimmune thyroid disease, um, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. It's quite fascinating to see the number of diseases that fall under this category. But it's also fascinating to see that in traditional medicine, we love specificity so that we don't actually recognize the overlap between different diseases. So even though multiple sclerosis might affect myelin in the central nervous system, we see that as a completely distinct entity from rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease affecting joints and synovial tissue. So, but from a functional perspective, we're like, no, those aren't like completely separate things and shouldn't be approached with radically different drugs or therapies. Um, we recognize that, you know, for autoimmunity to develop, there has to be disruption of the gut ecosystem and gut barrier. There has to be an environmental set of environmental triggers, and there has to be some kind of genetic predisposition for your, for your immune system to be over, overly reactive or react to something in a, um, in an inappropriate way. When you look at it from that lens, you're like, oh, wow, you know, these diseases are not all like completely different things. And we shouldn't just have like, radically different approaches. So, you know, Hopefully that gave a little bit of an overview of, you know, what autoimmunity is, what are some of the common autoimmune diseases, and how actually in functional medicine we're applying a slightly different lens so we don't get stuck in a myopic view of this disease, this disease, and this disease, and not, not see that they're actually somewhat inter- interrelated. And where does the gut, how does the gut tie this all together? Yeah, so I always come back to the concept, you have to think about barrier integrity. And people are probably familiar with the gut barrier, but any barrier is at play and so the most basic unit of the cell has a barrier has a cell membrane that's what makes a cell a cell it's organized it's like a home it has different rooms in the house and has different ways to keep the components of one room in the room it's supposed to be in so it functions we have different organelles like mitochondria the endoplasmic reticulum the golgi apparatus we have all these things in organization in the cell that keeps things in one area that need to be in that area and keeps other things that don't need to be there out. If you didn't have this selective permeability, these trans, you know, channels and ionophores and things, you didn't have these ways to maintain a barrier, then it wouldn't be a cell. It would just be a blob. There'd be no, no organizational structure. So the way that the body regulates essentially existence is having 
barriers, having ways to maintain a membrane. And so the gut is probably the most well understood and recognized barrier to the external world. Essentially, the gut is the barrier with you know the outside world. We don't think about it because it's inside of us, but the lumen of the gut where you've eaten food and it's traveling through, that's still the external world. So we have to maintain a very strict and selective, selectively permeable environments, which will require immune cells to be on the barrier, potentially recognizing and sampling from that external environment to see, is this something I need to respond to? And, you know, being able to deal with any sort of environmental toxins in a way that's, you know, is minimally detrimental to the organism. And so if things go wrong at the barrier, it's going to cause problems very quickly. And so if you lose that selective permeability, things can get into the bloodstream, things get, you know, will come to the, the liver, depending on how it's absorbed. You're going to get things in a location that it shouldn't. And the immune system actually is going to appropriately respond to be like, what the heck is this? And why is it here? And then we have, you know, years and years of evolution that's adapted different aspects of the immune system, the adaptive and the innate, different ways to handle different types of insults. But within all that complexity, there's still the, the fact that we're going to react to things. So I always tell people, you know, we think about autoimmune diseases, like your immune system is doing something wrong. No, in some sense, it's not. It probably started doing something right. And it's doing a lot of things right. But then there's enough similarity, whether in through that molecular mimicry mechanism or there's enough of a stimulus and you lost the barrier integrity that things got you know, out of control. But we have to be able to control how things are presented to the immune system. And if the barrier is so permeable that things just get into the bloodstream, the immune system has to do something. It's going to start you know, from a response that's probably overly aggressive. And then that's when in, in a genetically susceptible individual, you can start potentially responding to a foreign element, but also responding to uh, a self element. So, I mean, the gut is just such, and you know, the gut microbiome is such a great communicator to the immune system. We, it's so new, but you know, the the health of the gut microbiome, and we're still trying to figure out what's causative and what's cor correlative. So, what's a you know, a true causative relationship or what's just a association? But the gut microbiome and the gut bacteria, the viruses, the ecosystem there is communicating directly with our immune system and br bringing about potentially tolerance to the organisms themselves or other organisms. And so if there's a perturbation of that ecosystem, you're going to probably set someone else up to have a potentially aberrant immune response or lead to autoimmune development. So yeah, I mean, the gut is just like, like we could talk for weeks, like you said about the, um, about this topic too, but it's so critical in the early development and propagation of autoimmune disease. One of the things I've learned recently is the immune system kind of has lots of what do I want to say? Barriers, uh, safety mechanisms. So it takes multiple stimulations really to get things ramped up and cranked up. And one of those, the things that the immune system is looking for is inflammation and tissue damage. Yes. So we know in what you're talking about there, if your gut's inflamed because of earlier sensitivities to gluten or to grains or to beans or to dairy, that there's the good chance that it's going to crank up your immune system. And when it's cranked, it's less selective as to what it's going to destroy. It's saying, okay, things are getting dangerous. Let's, we're not going to use the polite police force anymore. We're going to bring out the SWAT team and we're not going to use the SWAT team anymore. We're going to bring out, you know, the regular troops and just, and just go after things. And it strikes me that you, not only do we have this gut component that seems to be big part of Lyme disease. Many people who have Lyme disease also have gut issues. And if you start getting into dysbiosis, so if you've been on years of antibiotics, we know your gut is dysbiotic, right? It's been disturbed to some degree and would be vulnerable to overgrowth, whether it's a yeast overgrowth or just uh, uh, and, uh, the volume, what do I want to say? The, the proportion of bacteria that were there before uh, may tilt one way or another, causing inflammation and damage. Or like mentioned earlier, the, the yeast, the SIBO, small intestine bowel overgrowth, the yeast start creeping up into the small intestine where they don't really belong uh, because they're more virulent, A, or maybe because there's too much sugar coming down the pike and, and being fed that way. But then it also strikes me, you get something like Lyme disease, you put that layer on top. And if you've got chronically infected and inflamed and damaged joints, that's going to fire things up. 
if you have damage in tissue in other places in the body, whether it's your uh, neurological system or, you know, some people have heart damage from Lyme disease, literally the worms, the worms, the spirochetes burrowing in there, causing tissue damage, that can begin a, in a small area and then cascade outward. So this whole idea, that's why I wanted to really get into the the nuts and bolts and the nitty and the gritty with you about this autoimmune protocol, this type of diet where you're really eliminating most things that can cause irritation may be critical for some of those people out there with Lyme disease who are struggling with the inflammation and the overreaction of their immune system. They can't quite get things calmed down. They can't get rid of the inflammation that's causing all the pain and all the damage. And part of that may be the condition that their gut's in. And it's important to remember that it's a moving target. It's a dynamic system. So what worked for you a year ago may not be working because the conditions have changed, whether again, you've been on a new antibiotic or a new protocol, or even maybe overdid things on the, the herbal side of things too. So it's in this whole idea of inflammation and layered causations leading to dysregulation. And then once, as you said, once the immune system recognizes self tissue as a pathogen, it, you've got the memory cells. It never goes away. So you can manage an autoimmune condition, but you can never cure it because the, you know, it's like a bad memory. The, the immune system is going to hold on to that protein and that, uh, that pattern and, and, and never let it go. Those memory cells, those B memory cells just do not go away ever. And so you're always going to be sensitive. Now, the question is, can you get the machinery turned off or quieted down so it's not active so it's the sentinel is there but he's not sounding the alarm yeah and that's all to this idea of the i call it the terrain we've talked about it before in podcast the ecosystem the terrain and recognizing the potential triggers i completely agree with you that a lot of these things probably are additive and synergistic when it comes to triggering events and to stimuli so you know it's one of the hardest things to try to recognize i want people to I don't want people to get the wrong impression that, you know, these foods are bad foods. It's not about being, you know, good and bad. It's about context and thinking <laughs> in it. In, in One it. of my favorite things to say when people come in the door, they say, what about this? What? Look, there's probably only one bad food in the world and it's a Twinkie. <laughs> <laughs> The rest of yeah. it, the rest of it has some value to it or not. It's just like you exactly like you're saying, whether or not it's good for you and good for you at this time, because what's good for you as a child, you know, for some people who do well on dairy, you know, it's like great, but later on in life, it's not so great. Other people, you know, they're the dairy queens, right? You know, they can have butter and milk and thrive and be completely healthy. And other people, it just sends them you know, to the toilet for three days. Like if milk puts you on the toilet for three days, don't do milk. Your body's trying yeah. to tell you something, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I completely agree. It's all about, you know, context. And so and I, and I hate the words really good and bad to begin with because it is so simplistic. And they don't get into nuance of what things really mean. And so these foods aren't, don't think of them as, you know, quote, good and bad foods, it's all about, you know, context and potentially they could be a source of irritation or in the setting of a disrupted gut and bad barrier integrity, then they become a problem. If that was completely fine, maybe they don't cause an issue for you. So, you know, trying to get away from seeing these foods as the causes of autoimmunity, that's just not, that's not the case. It's confusing causation and the, and the therapy, um, but they could potentially be stimulatory and cause issues in the wrong context because yes things are additive and then i also think of the threshold effect you once you breach a certain threshold and you lose tolerance then you've probably will release a cascade of immune reactivity that will be hard to control and so you know i just want to yeah, make sure people understand that caveat and also recognize too that even though this diet is called the autoimmune protocol what i've set up into this point it's really an approach for immune dysregulation. And so any kind of chronic, chronic inflammatory disease state that employs really a major component of it being immune dysregulation, whether that's chronic Lyme disease, a chronic multipathogenic infection, cancer, it, it can potentially be very helpful because of the potential mechanisms of increasing nutrient density, 
helping to rebalance the gut ecosystem, helping to rebalance the gut barrier, and minimizing during that duration the potential immune load or disrupting chemicals, foods, what have you, on the gut and the immune system. So, yeah, I think if sometimes you put a name on something and then it suddenly has a label, which we think about medicine, you know, antidepressants are used for a million things besides just antidepressants. So maybe we should recognize and take that out of the traditional medicines hat, medicine hat, you know, and, and recognize like, you know, just because it's called something doesn't mean it can't be applicable to other disease states when we think of things from the, the functional level. Yeah. Thanks for saying that so beautifully. Also, I want to, we start off the podcast saying, well, we've got this multidisciplinary approach to autoimmune disease and it's not all about diet and we spent the last 30 minutes talking nothing about food and the diet so what what were the other portions the other components of this intervention and how do you see those applying to really anybody dealing with a health challenge yeah so essentially what we studied specifically was a combined intervention that utilize something called the SAD2, SAD, standing for Standard American Diet, to AIP and SIX program that was, it's been created by Angie Alt, one of the women at Autoimmune Wellness and one of my great friends and colleagues. And this particular program was utilized in the initial IBD AIP study. But this program is an online group health coaching program that walks people through a phased elimination of the IP diet, basically starting from wherever they start from, which could be sad, it could be paleo, but walks them through week by week over a six-week period so that by the end of week six, they have implemented full AIP. During that time, they're getting education. So each day has its own elements of education about sleep hygiene, about ways to begin maybe a meditation practice or address stress management or address potentially the victim mindset that can come with chronic disease. There's so much embedded education time, you know, being able to get in nature. There's also practical education about grocery shopping, building a list, meal prep, batch cooking. There's so much there. And you have this community as well of the participants themselves engaging together. They're going through it together at the same time and engagement with the health coaches at a somewhat real time basis. So it's all virtual, but the between Angie and the health, other health coach who participated in this study, and the other health coaches who utilizes when she runs this program, they're able to give pretty real-time feedback to participants in the group setting. And it's just, honestly, you know, while I, the dietary approach is so profound, without the community elements, without some of these other elements, we would not see as robust uh, of effects, both you know, at the clinical level and just the practical things that people are reporting and maybe that's something we can you know, study in the in the future is trying to tease out how critical is the community component so you know what i tell people having worked with angie myself and implemented her program with my patients in a sort of direct integrated relationship is yeah i mean this program is life-changing it's a game changer and you can still if you don't do the formal program you can still implement elements of it uh, by having a health coach and a practitioner team. So to combine, we, my clinic, I work with Ryan Hall, who's a functional nutritionist, and we combine our expertise and we'll soon be bringing on health coaches, but have been utilizing this program and you know, Angie and some of her coaches expertise in our clinic up to this point, but really recognizing the value of having a health coach to do some of the nitty gritty dirty work of really understanding what dietary template to follow, how to actually practically do that in your personal setting, and then being able to explore some of the other lifestyle foundations. And back to what I said earlier about, you know, we use something called the eight elements, this lifestyle foundation, like lifestyle foundational pieces. And so, but you have to really build a, a team, an integrated team and the health coach, nutritionist and practitioner, I see is the key components and then really, if you can do that in some kind of community setting, whether it's everyone going through the same thing, like in the SAD to AIP and SIX program, or you're part of a you know, interest group online, or you're part of a local chronic Lyme disease community, you, you got to have something in the community that's more than just 
looking at other people's Instagrams because it's not, it's not community. Um, I mean, so online groups can be, uh, they're not quite exactly the same as being in person with people, but needing some, something to tap into that community component as well. And what were the results of the study? Yeah. So I'll sort of start with, you know, what we, how it was designed and what we really wanted to test, what was our primary hypothesis. And so we, people have heard about the SAD to AIP insect program at this point and what AIP is, but what we really wanted to do was we wanted to study a group of women with autoimmune thyroid disease or Hashimoto, Hashimoto's disease. And we wanted to see if a 10 week program, which was sort of the SAD to AIP and six program, plus a four week maintenance period could help improve their quality of life and symptom burden. We also sort of had objective markers of could we improve thyroid function and allow people to use less medication, as well as potentially changing and modulating the immune system as measured by a complete blood cell count. So things like white blood cells and you know eosinophils, as well as a, an inflammatory marker known as high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Those were all secondary outcomes, but the main thing was could we utilize this multifaceted intervention, this 10-week program to improve people's quality of life and symptoms? And so what folks did, in addition to sort of participating in this program, is they were actually able to meet with myself as sort of a functional practitioner at week one, week six, and week 10. In the beginning, to go over their initial blood chemistry results, at week six, we actually reviewed some organic acid and stool tests that were provided quite graciously by Genova Diagnostics for sort of exploratory purposes. And so I was able to kind of go through those results with people halfway and give them some food-based and lifestyle-based recommendations. There was no drugs used in this trial whatsoever, no supplements used in this trial whatsoever. It was all food-based. We'll be able to go over some of those tests with them in the middle of the program, the study to maybe tweak aspects of their diets in a way that would be potentially more beneficial. And then met with them again at the end of the study to talk about the final results and things that they could potentially do going forward. So and everywhere in between, I was also kind of on the sidelines interacting and engaging with the health coaches to kind of stay on top of what folks were dealing with and to talk with participants if they had reactions to things or had questions. So it was a very high touch study, a very high touch intervention. And the main result that we found looking at that primary outcome was that there were statistical and clinically significant changes in quality of life. And the quality of life measure that we used was a questionnaire called the SF36, which stands for short form 36. And it has eight subdomains. So really sort of looking at, you know, general health, mental health, emotional health, different physical health parameters, vitality, pain. It's a lot of different subdomains, but every single domain statistically and clinically, uh, you know, significant level changed. And that was phenomenal. That was so amazing to see. And we also saw a clinically and statistically significant change in symptoms such that they decreased from an average of around 90 on this symptom questionnaire score, which it's like golf high score is not good. Um, so these folks had you know, complex symptoms across multiple domains, domains, but an average for the group around 90, at the end, it was around like 28 or 29. So a remarkable decrease. And when you look at some of the individual results, some people went from a score of like 105 to 7, 96 to 4. I mean, just, I thought maybe one person might have kind of a remarkable change, but there was some remarkable changes in every single woman um, who participated saw a decrease. And I can't remember now if I glossed over you know, how many people we studied, but it ended up being a 17-person trial. So we had 17 women between the ages of 20 to 45. I tried to eliminate the potential effect of, sort of perimenopause, menopause. And they were either obese, I mean, sorry, normal weight or overweight. So BMI less than 29. And that was also done to try to mitigate any major weight loss that could have occurred in someone who was more obese that would have complicated the biomedication dosing during the study. So 17 women ages between 20 to 45, either normal weight or overweight, and no other active autoimmune diseases, and with a formal diagnosis of autoimmune thyroid disease by a medical history or um, laboratory testing with elevated antibodies. <clears throat> Excuse me. So of, that's, of those 17 women, 16 of them finished. The only woman who actually didn't finish, she got pregnant at like week nine, and she had been previously dealing with infertility issues. So that was a huge win. So I was actually so happy that essentially everyone who started the study finished. And this was a fairly rigorous group. Um, in my normal practice, If even with our clinic, with some of the support resources, I'm not seeing 100% of people finish. That is, it's, just a, it's a very rigorous dietary approach, and you layer in the testing that we require to people. I was really amazed that... You know, essentially everyone finished the, the study. And uh, when it came to the thyroid function themselves, 
We didn't see at the group level that any of the thyroid hormone markers or TSH decreased, or and the antibodies also didn't have a statistical or clinically significant change. A couple of caveats with that: we actually started off, and I didn't know this before the study. I you know only I enrolled anyone that simply had an abnormal antibody level. I didn't know what the group average would be at the beginning, but if anyone's familiar with uh, thyroid peroxidase antibodies, the group average at the beginning was around 200, which honestly, like, that's pretty good. I'm usually trying to get people like less than 300, less than 400. So we actually started off pretty good. So I wasn't even expecting really to see a group change just because of the short duration of the study. And we were starting off at a pretty good level. Same thing with the TSH for the group. It was around two, which is actually a pretty good pretty good level. So, um, so yeah, well, we did see things change at the group level. Six out of the 13 women who finished the study and began it initially on some form of thyroid replacement medication were able to decrease their medication either once or twice um, during the study period. Uh, a seventh person switched from a T4, T3 combination medication to a T4 only by the end of the study. I didn't include her because it was kind of a gray area, but like 50% of the women were able to decrease medication use as a result of this intervention. And a couple other people saw decreases in TSH that didn't immediately necessi- necessitate a decrease in medication. But I'm guessing if they you know, continued with the changes for a few more months, they would have probably needed to be on less medication. And that was just so awesome and profound to see. And you know, mechanistically, weight loss was certainly a component. That's the number one thing used to gauge how much medication, thyroid medication someone needs. And if someone loses a significant amount of weight, they'll need less medication. But there was a couple of people who didn't, uh, who had drops in their TSH, but didn't lose that much weight or didn't lose weight at all. One woman had no weight, self-reported weight loss, and her TSH dropped and she needed less medication. I think that was from improved absorption of the medication in the gut and in some aspects of the you know, nutrient density of the, of the diet. Another woman, same thing. She had a big drop in her TSH and only lost like three or four pounds. So there was something else going on. And I'm hypothesizing that it had something to do with the absorption of thyroid medication, increased nutrient density from the diet and other aspects of the modulation of the gut. But there's some pretty amazing results in those domains. And then the last thing I'll say here before I get your reflections is we actually also saw a statistically and clinically significant decrease in that inflammatory marker, the high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And the group average at the beginning was around 1.5 milligrams per liter, which for folks who are familiar or even for folks who are you know, not familiar, that marker is typically thought of to be abnormal if it's greater than three. Although if someone's just not acutely sick, that marker should be less than one, actually realistically should be less than 0.75. So the group average at the beginning was 1.5, which told you something's not quite right. And even after excluding two women who were acutely sick and had an appropriately elevated high sensitivity CRP, of the 14 women who finished and were not acutely sick that we included in the final analysis, there was a 30% decrease to around 1.1 milligrams per, per liter at the end of the study. And if you took out one woman who was a pretty significant outlier, the initial average would have been something like 1.24, and the final average would have been something like 0.82, so actually less than that goal ideal of uh, one milligram per liter. And that also sort of would have been a 30% decrease. So that's a massive decrease in such a short period of time. And to put some of that in context, you know, 30% decrease, oh, that doesn't seem like much. Well, that's like going from, my gross analogy is like, it's going from 1.5 to 1.1 or 1.2 to 0.8 is like trying to lose the last five pounds. You know, it's not the same as losing the first seven. And that's, it's a really gross analogy, but the best one I could sort of come up with, you know, if you're grossly overweight, potentially making small dietary changes, losing the first seven pounds will be pretty easy. But losing that last five is going to be, it's going to take a lot of different, you know, potential approaches. So the fact that we saw uh, a less than ideal marker become more ideal at that range by that amount is pretty profound. And it wasn't as statistically robust as the other marker. So we definitely need to probably explore this in larger populations to see, you know, was this statistical noise or was this a real effect? But I was really happy to see that. And there was even some trends towards decreases in the white blood cell count as well, showing us something was happening here at the immune modulation level. And there was even two women who started the study with low white blood cell counts that saw some tonicity. So balancing that their white blood cell counts actually came back up. So the effect of this study or the effect of this intervention could have been kind of like a tonic on the immune system to find that right balance and sweet spot. So by talking a lot, you probably have a few questions, but there was just some awesome, awesome results in this study. And I was so, so happy about 
being able to do it and some of the things that we found. It's, it's amazing about the whole yin yang balance idea and that the immune system can be overactive, underactive. And in either case, it was including with an infection with autoimmune disease, right? It, like you said, some of the women had low white blood cell counts, even though they've got this autoimmune disease, which you think, oh, your autumn, your immune system's overactive, right? And it's going after things. Uh, so it's, everybody has a slightly different or maybe a majorly different combination. And that's why Lyme disease is so complex is the one glove doesn't fit all, right? One size doesn't fit all. One protocol doesn't fit all because these variables matters like are or is part of your immune system overactive and another part underactive is part of your gut overactive or underactive how's the the quality of your microbiome so forth and so on it goes on and on and on and on you know we even even really talked about genetics and all that because we know genetics are individual as fingerprints it just goes just go to show you how the basics can really get in there and balance and fine tune some of these complex components that medications either cannot or have not yet been able to to do. And also, Dr. Abbott, I just want to thank you very much for your time. You've been very, very generous once again, sharing your enthusiasm and knowledge in this new exciting study. If folks are interested in learning about this AIP protocol and how you can help them get started. How can people get hold of you? Yeah. So the first thing that I would tell folks is please follow autoimmune wellness. Um, also, so Angie and Mickey Trescott, Angie Alt and Mickey Trescott have been doing wonderful, wonderful work. I will, and outside of research also do regular blogs on their page. Some of them are pretty lengthy. I somehow can't manage to do things that are short and brief, um, but um, please follow them. They have wonderful get started guides on how you can get started immediately with potentially following a AIP dietary protocol. And what's the name of that again? The, the Auto, blog? Yeah. Autoimmune wellness. Okay. And is it autoimmunewellness.com or something? Yes. And okay. they both have individual a couple of different cookbooks. Mickey came out with a nutrient-dense AIP cookbook recently. It's wonderful. Angie's got um, a wonderful book. There's some amazing resources and books that they've provided, and they've also been in collaboration, and I you know, work pretty closely with Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, who did some foundational work in being able to sort of discover the principles behind this nutrient-dense elimination diet. So definitely follow them. You know, Angie's program, SAD to AIP and 6, I can't, you know, uh, it sounds like I have stock in her her program. It's an amazing program. I've just seen so many wonderful things happen, and I work with her closely with some of our patients who go through that program. And it's just such a it's such a great value as well. I mean, the program itself I think is something like four hundred and ninety dollars now for for six weeks and an optional four week add on. There's so much value there. I mean, it's going to change your life, and not to you know, sort of one of the conclusions from the study, you know, not to devalue my care as a functional provider, but one of the things that came out of the study was that a lot of these people came in super sick and it would have been very challenging to know necessarily where to start as a provider. And I could have done some pretty elaborate things. And some of the stool tests showed some pretty significant dysbiosis that I could have intervened on with pretty heavy hitting probiotics or antimicrobials. But a lot of stuff went away with just a dietary approach. And it helped me as a clinician know what I should go after, after that 10 week period. So it really was going to tailor and redirect my resources, help the person, you know, save some money. And so you can do quite a lot with some of these dietary lifestyle approaches. You don't immediately necessarily need to jump in and spend a lot of money on a fun functional practitioner in their time. And so doing your, your due diligence and research, but yeah, I would love for folks to be able to explore things like Angie's program and, you know, collaborative practices that offer a lot more than just maybe you know one type of practitioner when you're you know that sick and, and that far off because it just even the best of us as clinicians might find it difficult when someone comes in quite complex and we don't know what's going to get better by following you know a dietary and lifestyle community-based intervention versus something else so really you know check out her program i think the next cycle that she's doing is going to be in september and she'll have she has you can still sign up for the wait list but it's sad to aip um, dot com, I believe, but sad to AIP and six is the name of her program. I myself am in Charlottesville, Virginia, with 
a clinic for resilient roots with my partner Ryan Hall. So the two of us combine sort of my functional medicine perspective, his functional nutrition perspective, and really do what we call it is integrated care. So really providing our services together. And so part of our initial intake is a very lengthy set of two visits, but we're meeting with you together because we blend our skills. We see things as synergistic in the world. We recognize our skills can also be synergistic. So we're really trying to provide a different paradigm for folks. And while we focus on folks in Virginia, we also do telemedicine from a functional medicine perspective for folks across the country, because we know it can be challenging to find the right person or right team where you are. And so while I would love everyone to have a local practitioner, maybe you don't have the right person, you know, don't have a person at all. And so we want to be available for folks to provide as much of a cons- consultation service and functional medicine as we, as we can on a telemedicine platform. And what's your website, Rob? Yeah. So the clinic is resilient roots. My personal website where I have a podcast and I have an episode with you, McKay, and eventually I'll get another one out <laughs> that we recorded that was really wonderful that I can't wait to share with folks. Um, but that website with you know the blog, the podcast, and some poetry is called amedicinalmind.com. Um, and the podcast is A Medicinal Mind. I also, if you go to that page, you can sign up for an ebook. We've talked about it before. It's a wonderful, I think a wonderful resource if you're when it gets started, it can be potentially a little overwhelming because um, there's a lot on there. Don't try to do everything, but you might be able to find a new podcast or a new book or new training to be able to explore sort of integrative and functional health. And it might help you weave through some of the crazy stuff that's on the the internet and really help to hone you know, where you might want to put your time to learn more about this kind of approach. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing, Dr. Abbott, and look forward to uh, our next interview, whenever that might be. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, you've given me such a wonderful opportunity to share some of my work and my story. And I can't remember the last time we talked, but um, some people were like, man, you were in residency just like a few months ago. I'm like, well, some things have changed. So um, <laughs> I, took a, I took a little bit of a different uh, life life trajectory. And I, I'm so happy for it because it's been so rewarding. So I hope, you know, folks maybe without the details can recognize that, hey, you can do what you love doing and you might, it might involve doing another path that academia corporate world hasn't laid out for you. So I'm living proof of it. I think we're all kind of in a space, somewhat living proof of it, but yeah, I mean, keep your mind open, stay curious because you can make your own, you can make your own life and be super fulfilled. such an interesting study. And you know, what really struck to me was not only the effects of this diet that he was that he was doing a study on, but also it seemed to me there was a, an effect on the way that this, this treatment and these lifestyle changes were administered with this kind of community-based and high-contact, high- contact, high uh, social, highly social integration of these lifestyle changes. It really impressed me. You know, it's a great model. And I wish, I don't know if any of you know of something that models this in the Lyme treatment world, please let me know because we'd like to bring them on the show. You know, working with the doctor is expensive. They have lots of bills. Their hours are very valuable. So when you go to a Lyme literate doctor, you're paying hundreds, if not thousands of bucks just to sit in the room with them right? And this model leverages, so you do have some time with the doctor, but then you have health coaches. And wouldn't it be awesome if there were some Lyme coaches and a a moderated uh, group where it's safe? Now, there are many moderated groups out there, but I don't think they're necessarily associated with doctors. So it'd be great to marry the two together. So that's that's kind of what I heard out of this interview. It would be a great way to put together some of the disparate pieces that we have out there in the Lyme world yeah. and make it work even in a more yeah. profound and stronger way. Yeah. And also, if you haven't gotten your Lyme Journey Roadmap, go to LymeNinjaRadio.com, click on the extras button, download it, fill it out. If you have questions, email us. Let us know about this. This diet part is a critical part, either in the last phase of restoring your health or in the beginning in preparing for treatment or even maybe as part of the treatment. So this diet, don't leave the diet for the last thing. It's so important. Yeah. So many Lyme disease patients say that they wouldn't have had as control of their illness um, as they do right now if they didn't 
take control of their diet. So it is not unimportant. No, it may be the most important thing that you do. Yeah. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button at the bottom of your podcast app. That way you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you. Yes, please, please, please. We've had a few recently. We need a few more. If you're thinking about it, you have a few nice things to say, please head on over to the iTunes podcast app or you can do it on the iTunes store Leave a quick review. We'd love to hear from you. And it helps us reach more people like you. This is such important message to get out there, how to get better. And we can get that message out with your help. And last, if you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything at all, just send us an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can fold airplanes into paper? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.